we, we, we are wrapping up the book of Daniel today. So, Father, thank you for the ministries of this church. We've been here on this island for many decades. There are many missionaries during that time that have been sent out and supported, still supported by this church. We just continue to pray for your watchful care over our missionaries in the different places you have them. Some are in countries where it's illegal to share your faith. And so we ask for your protection and provision on the missionaries uh, of this church. And then we ask, Lord, for you to work through this church here on the island as we continue to try to spread the gospel, to, to grow a community of believers who can can reach out to share the gospel, but also just minister to the needs of the island. We pray, Lord, for this next hour as we study uh, the book of Daniel and bring it to an end, that you just help us to see something in this text that applies to us, and we could go out and live it. We lift it up in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I thought I would begin by just sharing a story. At the Right before the pandemic hit, there was a wedding, a big wedding here. Okay, it was the Jones daughter, Jeff and Jane right there, their daughter Jessica. She serves as our children's director. And we had this big wedding here, but there was a little bit of uneasiness because I remember there was a lot of discussion about the pandemic and there was whispers of they may shut down, they may close things down. And I remember we got all the way down and they had the reception at the library down here. Uh, no, the museum, sorry, the, the museum down here. And lots of food and, and great fellowship, people around talking, and the word was spreading, you know, they're going to shut down. You know, everything's, we're going into lockdown. And I remember the words were, good thing we had got the wedding in on time, because if it had just been, they, she was thinking about two different dates, you know, if it had been a little later, we, we may not have been able to have the wedding. Now, the wedding was great. And I can just remember sitting, eating great food, talking to people, and just imagine if in the reception down there where we're celebrating, it's like the, 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 the wedding feast, the bride and groom have come together. It's a celebration and we're all down there. What if in the middle of that, poof, the door breaks open, the police come in, they start dragging people off, arresting some of them, some of them judgment right there. And people are like, whoa, whoa, well, you know, that's not us. It doesn't involve us. We're, gonna, we're still eating our food, you know. I'm sitting there at my table. All of a sudden, whew, someone gets taken away from my table. This is the idea behind why God has two programs in the Bible, one for Israel and one for the church. Uh, now, I, I lay it out that way because all that we've been talking about has been about the plan for Israel. Today we're going to land with what he's going to do with his people Israel, but there's also the church. Today in the world, God's people are the church. It's not the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel currently rejected Christ. Now, if you're a Jew today and you accept Christ as your Savior, you're part of the church. Now, weeks ago, we had a sermon that talked about God's going to come back one day and call His church out. And you know what happens? We are united with Christ. The Bible talks about the bride and the groom come together, and there's a great feast. And this is why I use the opening illustration. When we're called out and we're together, with uniting with Christ, and there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, is what the Bible calls it, a great feast 
God's going to turn his attention to Israel back on earth. And he's going to bring about their salvation as a nation because he gave his promise to them. And we're going to see that today in Daniel. Now, last week, when I was going through the chapter, I did this quite a lot. Daniel wrote about it. It happened in history. Over and over again, he predicted what would happen in history. It's very specific to arranged marriages, to murder, murder of spouses, to over and over again. King of the north invades, king of the south fights. And I walked you through that. Daniel wrote about it. It happened. Except right towards the end. Daniel wrote about it. It hasn't happened yet. There's an aspect to, to, to the prophecy about Israel that has not happened. And one, one of the things I wanted to say at the outset is the early church even recognizes. As we read through chapter 11, it talks about the king shall do as he wills. Well, we saw that that did not happen in history. That, we, that was the point we hit in chapter 11. It was like, that hasn't happened yet. He wrote about it. It hasn't happened yet. And it's at the very end. Verse 40 in chapter 11, at the time of the end, king of the south shall attack. We talked about that last week. We know we're at the very end. That's where we're at, Daniel. Not only are we at the end of the book, but we're at the end of the prophetic plan for Israel. That's what I want you to grasp. And I led with the illustration for you to understand we're talking about God's plan for Israel as a nation. He has a plan for the church. What I'm talking about today What's going on is we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, <clears throat> there's three points here I'm going to give you today. And where we left off was the battle, that battle of Armageddon, where Israel is a passive player, just like all of the history we had, where all of these nations were going through their land, using Israel as a staging ground for their attacks on other people, and they're helpless. We get to the very end, the same thing. The same thing has happened. At the Battle of Armageddon, we talked about the different countries involved in this, and Israel again is this passive player, right? And that's where we pick up. Today in chapter 12, it says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, here's my first point. At the end, at the very end, Israel is delivered. Israel is saved. A deliverer comes and they're saved. That is one of the points that God's giving all of this prophetic content to Daniel. Say, when it gets to the end, Israel's going to be saved. So who is being delivered? This is, this is Israel. This is about Israel. And that hadn't happened. Daniel wrote about it. This never happened. In all of the battles and things that took place in Israel, there wasn't a salvation like this. It's still going to happen in the future. Now, <clears throat> we just to uh, uh, illustrate even more, he says in here, Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. Speaking to Daniel now, we've seen this before in chapter 9 where he's giving a prophecy about Israel. He says, your people, this is for you and your people. This is the nation of Israel. It's Daniel's people. 
And he's saying at the very end, we just came out of that chapter 11. It's this great battle. They're surrounded. And he says, but your people are going to be delivered. That's the very first point that I make. Now, I want to point something else out because it says, and there shall be a time of trouble. Who is being delivered, right? Daniel's people. It's Jewish in its context, but what are they specifically being saved from? He uses this term, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Now he is talking about something referred to as Jacob's trouble, and we've used the term great tribulation. And the first point I'm going to make about this is it's something new. This is not more trouble of the same. There's always war in the Middle East. Israel's always had these struggles, but there's something different about this. One of the guys that I was studying on this, he referred to it this way. Uh, He's referring to a period of war, famine, darkness, disease, and demons. The earth will experience wholesale slaughter, the collapse of heavenly bodies, the destruction of one-third of the earth and the sea, the scorching sunlight that burns people to death. He will literally break loose. Hell will literally break loose on earth. It is not more trouble than we currently have. It is a trouble on a new scale. That's the first point to take notice about this. Now, Jesus connects here as well. In Matthew 24, he's talking about the end times. And he uses this term, abomination of desolation. And we've talked about that in this series. I kind of feel bad for you if this is your first Sunday because I'm going to pull in things from a lot of our other sermons to connect dots. But this term, abomination of desolation, refers to when someone comes into the Holy of Holies within the Jewish religious system, their tabernacle, their, their, their holy altar, and they take a, an animal that is considered a defiling animal, it's, it's um, impure, and they cut it open and they spread its body parts and its blood over the sacred areas of Israel's altar and temple and the Holy of Holies as a way to defy their God. And this happened. This happened in between the Old and New Testament with Antiochus Epiphanes. It's in history. They came in. He persecuted the Jews. He took a pig and he slaughtered it and spread its blood and guts all over to desecrate their temple. Yet Jesus is talking about it as yet it's still future. So what Antiochus did did not fulfill what Daniel wrote about. Jesus says in Matthew 24, and I put some of the verses up here, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So he's talking about future. And by the way, he just said, Daniel wrote the book of Daniel in that phrase, for then there shall be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. And then he goes on in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation, he's talking about the end times there at the very end. And this is the point I'm making that Jesus himself is talking about on the timeline of history, there is something called the tribulation. And part of it is 
the great tribulation. And that term great tribulation also is known as Jacob's trouble. You say, Pastor, why Jacob? Because Jacob is one of the fathers. His sons, from him came the nation of Israel. And so it's a way of saying Israel, Jacob, Jacob's trouble, a time of great trouble for Israel. Jeremiah 37 says, how awful that day will be. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. Now I put the full text up there. Thus says the Lord, we have a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? When then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? And he's equating the pain that a woman has in childbirth to everybody. But he says, can a man give labor? He's talking about it's pain. They're going to go through something that is painful and hard. And in verse 7, he says, alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Now notice the word great and the word distress in that verse. The great distress, the great trouble, the great tribulation. Now, let me pull something out from another sermon. We talked in this series about Daniel's 77s. He said at the end of these 70 weeks, it was a period of 490 years, the end is going to come. And we know there are still seven years left that have not happened yet. He gave us timelines. When you click, when does it start? It starts when there's a peace agreement that is made for peace in the Middle East, that all elusive thing that people always talk about. How can we get peace in the Middle East? The Bible says one day in the future, a leader out of, out of a, a, a European confederation will come and broker a deal for peace with Israel. It's in Daniel chapter 9. That is the click that will stop, start the last seven years. And the culmination of that, it says in those seven years, halfway through in Daniel 9, he says he's going to break the peace. The peace will be broken. And the, the next three and a half years are what's called the Great Tribulation, Jacob's distress. Even here in chapter 12, verse 6 says, And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. Now listen to this, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. But we know, we've already learned that Israel, when the peace is broken, the power, as he says right here, of the holy people, it's broken, yet it comes to an end. He's saying that this is, this is the end. And there's the words, time, times, and half a time. There's three and a half years left. Time, a year, times, two years, and half a time, half a year. Daniel's last seven years from chapter 9, we see the ending right here. The last three and a half years. And he says, it will be finished. And... The point, part of the point here is to say, 
it's Jewish in its context. This is the nation of Israel. It's fulfilling what's been promised to Israel. Daniel, you and your people, there's going to be, who's delivered? Israel. From what? The, the, this great tribulation. And then lastly, who's in charge over Israel during all this? And that's what he led with in verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. Now, to pull from another sermon. Do you remember when Daniel was waiting for the, the answer, the greatest prophecy in all the Bible in chapter 9 where he comes and says there's 490 years left and that will be the end? He didn't get the answer right away. Finally, the angel showed up and says, I got the answer for you. He says, what took you so long? And he says to him, because I was withstood. When God dispatched me from his throne room to come down to you to give you the answer to your prayers, I was met by an entity. And we talked about that. If you remember in that sermon about spiritual warfare, that behind every king and kingdom and region of the globe, the angels, the fallen angels have organized themselves in a way to try to work against God's plan. This is why Paul in the New Testament says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and angelic powers in high places. And that's why in that sermon I said, our struggle's not against politics and politicians and agendas of those politicians. Our ultimate struggle is spiritual in nature. And here we see there is Michael the archangel over Israel in charge and as Israel, all these forces are coming together against him, Michael will arise at the end. And we know a little bit about him. I, I gave a little bit of his resume, Michael the archangel. First of all, there's a record of his quarrel with Satan. You can get a great story out of the book of Jude, where it says, Michael the archangel came and wrestled and fought over the body of Moses with Satan. Why would Satan want the body of Moses? Doesn't say. Could be that he wanted to take the body and use it like a shrine that he could lure people to worship. He wanted the body. And the Bible says that Michael and the angel, archangel was dispatched. He came and he dueled with Satan. Now there's something to make note of, which I did in an earlier summer, but just to remind you that Satan, his equal opposite is Michael. It is not God the Father or Christ or the Spirit. And sometimes we make that mistake. In fact, I have coffee on Wednesdays with a group of men, and I did this test. I said, we were talking about these sermons, and I said, I'm going to say a word. You tell me the exact opposite word that comes to your mind. Black, they shouted. White, hot, cold, tall, short. I got to the end. I said, Satan. They said, God. Wrong. You failed. He is not the opposite in any way. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal, self-existing. No one created him. Satan was made. He is limited in power. He is limited spatially. His equal is Michael. Michael is created. Michael has power, but it's limited. And you see this in Oftentimes, Michael is dispatched to be that equal fight with Satan. 
We, we got a record of, of this quarrel. We got a record of the quality of Michael as a leader. In Revelation chapter 16, it talks about uh, war. It says, Michael and his angels wage war against Satan, the devil, that serpent of old, and his angels. It actually refers to Satan's angel, angels, demons, as angels. They're fallen angels. They were created angels, and they fell away. And you see this. There's a general and his forces, and another general and his forces, and they wage war. Who are they? Satan and Michael. And here at the end, again, when Israel is at their most desperate hour, when they're surrounded, they're being trampled on, it says Michael arises. He raises up. He is going to play a part in the protection and deliverance of his people at that time. And lastly, that's why I put here, he's the quintessential leader, angelic leader of all the angels. He fits that. And it refers to him as the prince, that great prince who has charge of your people. And it says that the people shall be delivered. Who will be delivered? His people, Israel, the Jews. But then he specifies everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. That's who will be saved. Now, that kind of completes this first point, which is at the end, Israel will be delivered. But now point number two is at the end, Israel will be resurrected. Because look what he says in the next verse. After he says those, the people delivered are everyone whose name shall be written in the book. Then he says, and many of those, so he's talking about those written in the book, many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So my point, second point is this. At the end, there's resurrections. Now, we're going to see the salvation of Israel here at the end. And I need you to back up, right? And give me my, there we go, that one. I want to read to you this verse that comes out of Romans 11 where Paul is writing. And listen to what he says. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. He goes on to say, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. Now, this is an important verse because Paul is dealing with Israel. And there's a discussion in Romans about who is really Israel. Is it the, the Jews who have accepted Christ? What happened to the Jews then that, that don't accept Christ? And he uses a couple terms in here. One is this term, fullness of Gentiles. What does that mean? This is a term that talks about from the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2 all the way to the rapture of the church when they're taken out, Israel's heart will be hardened, but it's only a partial hardening because some of the Jews accept Christ. Some don't. Some, there's a hardening, but as a nation, they do not recognize Christ. But even in Romans, he says this, until the fullness of the Gentiles. So we live in this parentheses of 69 of those weeks 
the last week, seven years still to happen. We're in between that and the church is God's people. And when our time has ended, the fullness of the Gentiles has ended, then he says, Israel's going to be saved. He says, uh, I will banish ungodliness and I will take away their sin. That's what we're reading about in Daniel right now. We're reading about the salvation of Israel. And he brings this up, these two resurrections. At the end, Israel is saved, but at the end, there's resurrections. Now, notice, go ahead and go to my next slide. Who? He uses, nope, go back. Those who sleep in the dust. This is a term that means dead people. Asleep in the dust. That's in the ground. Now, if you remember from one of our other sermons, we talked about that in Christ's day, they used this word that today we use it for the word cemetery. Now, to us today, we go to cemetery, they're all dead people that are in the dirt. But back in their day, the word cemetery was applied to hotels. What is a hotel? It's a place where you go to temporarily sleep, where you're going to wake up and continue your journey. That's the word that we use for cemetery today. They're asleep. They're permanently asleep is what we think about. But in biblical terms, sleeping is how they look at death. It's temporary. They're in the dirt, but it's temporary. They're going to awake. Just like that's why they can use, borrow from the, the, the word hotel. Because in their mind, they're temporarily asleep, but we're going to awake one day and continue our journey. And so he's saying, these people who sleep in the dust shall awake. That means made alive or resurrected. So now he's bringing up at the end resurrections. Those who will be saved. Who? Israel. Who? Those whose names are written in the book of life. And many of those who are asleep are going to be resurrected. Now, I want to talk to you about resurrection here because there's, there's two kinds of resurrections that he's, he gives us. There's two kinds of resurrections. There's the resurrection of the saved, and there's the resurrection of the unsaved. That's the two kinds. And he clearly says what, what happens with each. The resurrection of the saved are those who are made alive. Some come alive, some to life everlasting. Some are, are made alive again to contempt. That's what he says in the verse. There's two different things here. Some people will be resurrected because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ and they are resurrected to something specific. Those who do not have faith in Christ are resurrected for something different than these people over here. There's two kinds. Okay, you with me? All right, now, who? That's who's resurrected, these two categories, two kinds. Now, what's the next thing? Well, there's an order to it all. And we get this out of Corinthians. Show them uh, my first Corinthians verse. Now, just listen to this. It says, for as in Adam, this is Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. But each in his own, and here's the word, order. Now, what that is telling you is that there's an order to the resurrections. They don't all happen at the same time. That's the point. They happen at different points in time. Different resurrections happening at different times. 
And he gives us the example. Christ, the first fruits. He uses the word first. Christ is the first resurrection of his kind. Before that, any resurrection that happened was different. It's like a fruit tree that you plant and you're waiting. When is the first fruit going to show on the tree? And suddenly one day you look out and there it is, the very first fruit. Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection tree. You say, well, pastor, what about like when Jesus did his ministry, he raised Lazarus back. He was dead and he made him come alive again. Yes, but Lazarus died again. He had to go through death twice physically. This resurrection is different. The Bible says the first fruits of resurrection. This is a resurrection. When we are made alive, we're given a new kind of body, a body that the Bible uses these words, indestructible, incorruptible. We can't be corrupted by sin. We can't be, be killed. It doesn't die, which means all of the effects of life that make us age towards death will not be part of that body. It's a different kind of resurrection than Lazarus. And Jesus is the first, he says. Then he goes on to say, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. There's, he's showing you the order. First is Jesus resurrected. Then the next category of resurrection is people who are in Christ at his coming, when he comes back. And then he goes on to say the next one, then comes the end. He's given you the order. So I made a slide to show this. The first kind saved in Christ. Here's the order. Christ already happened. The church. Now this comes out of our sermon. You can go back and listen to it. First Thessalonians on the, the absent church. And in First Thessalonians 4, it talks about they were, they were worried. The church was that Jesus had already come back and they missed him. And he said, no, no, he hasn't come back. And he went on to say that when he comes back, those who are dead in Christ actually get resurrected and go up to meet him before those who are alive and remain. So if you're alive and he comes back, you get caught up in the air to him. That's where we get the word rapture from. Rapturo is a Latin word that means caught up, caught up. But there's a resurrection that happens first. That's what he's talking about there. The church is resurrected. That is still future because Jesus has not come back yet. That's going to happen in the timeline of future down the road. Now, we have another in the order of resurrection. And notice I put a plus sign there to show you that these happen at the same time. It's the resurrection of tribulation saints. You can read that, about that in Revelation 20. And then right here in Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26 talks about Old Testament saints. So the church gets resurrected in order. And then, remember, we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're having our feast. The bride and the groom have been reunited. God turns his attention to Israel on earth. He's finishing his plan. He's got seven years left to finish his plan. Click. When does it start? Peace treaty made in the Middle East for Israel. At the end, great tribulation, a lot of trouble, but we see they're delivered. But there's a, he's talking about a resurrection because it says, first of all, during that time of trouble, if you put your faith in Christ, odds are you're going to get killed. It's a hard time to be a believer. They have cancel culture to its extreme. They don't just cancel your job, they cancel your life. That's what Revelation talks about. It uses the word 
those who were wearing white robes whose heads were beheaded. That's, what he, that's the, the language it uses. And if you were alive in that time of trouble and you became a believer, then the church was already resurrected. You then get resurrected at the end and also all the Old Testament saints. They get resurrected then because the bride of Christ comes out of the church age and then later he brings up Old Testament saints with him. Now, the other kind of resurrection is in Revelation 20. It's at the very end, and this is the language it uses. It says, all unsaved of all ages, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, it says books are open. These are those who decide that kind of resurrection. They don't have faith in Christ. They've rejected God. They're resurrected and made alive. And they also are given a body that's indestructible. But because they don't have faith in Christ, they're going to stand at, a, at the great white throne judgment. The books will be open. It says everything they did is known. There's nothing hidden, nothing secret. It's going to convict them. They are in rebellion to God. And they go cast away from Him forever into the lake of fire where you can burn but you're not destroyed because your body is indestructible. That's what he's giving you here when he says there's two kinds. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, these seem very close, but there's a separation, a period there, just like a lot of prophecy. It's, it's event-oriented and not time oriented, and there's a lot of valleys in between these. You have right here in this moment, you're seeing the resurrected of the Old Testament of, of Israel. At the end, they're saved. At the end, there's a resurrection. And at the end, there are Israelites who are rewarded. The last point out of this passage, and this is where we get this from. Listen as I read along. It says, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Now that word wise refers to knowledge of a, like a teacher. They have a knowledge and they're going to shine. Okay, so it says they shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And the two categories we see, those who are wise, they're going to shine, and those who turn many to righteousness they're going to shine like stars. And this is talking about the revival of Israel at the end. This is the point. Israel is saved. How? Because they come to faith. They finally come to faith. You go back to Revelation and you read and you see there's this great revival in Israel. And so it's talking about how does it happen? There are those who are wise, they can discern, they understand, and they're going to speak, although at great risk, it's a challenging time to do it, but they're going to speak and they're going to cause people to come to an understanding of the truth. It says that they're going to turn towards righteousness. Those who follow unrighteousness, and at that time, there's a lot of, uh, of deception, there's a lot of untruth, there's a lot of fake news, if you want to put it in that category, about what really is true and what is not. And the whole world will follow fake news. And yet in Israel, there will be those who will stand up with courage, and they're going to shine, and they're going to preach the truth, they're going to share the truth of the gospel. And it says, Jews will come to saving 
faith. It's a revival in Israel, and the promises of God find their fulfillment. But do you know what it took? It took how many thousands of years of Israel in rejection, in rebellion, being trampled on, God turning His attention to a new plan, the church, and finally He comes back to Israel at the end. And at the end, they are saved. They put their faith in Christ. You can read about it in Revelation. But there's this reward. It says, those who are wise, they shine forever, it says, like the sky above. There's something about these teachers that God lifts them up in a way. It's a reward. Now, we see at the end then that Israel has to come through faith trial by fire. Like you take something that is impure and you put, fi- put fire to it, it's going to burn out the impurities. As a nation, they, are, they have been put to the fire. Not all of them, but some. And the teachers that are wise are going to make many turn to righteousness, and you'll see this resurgence of faith in Israel. That's where Daniel lands it. Now, at the very end here, I'm going to give you three applicational thoughts. Because it's like, Pastor, what does this mean to us today? If this is all about the Jews, and this is about His plan and bringing about fulfillment, yes, we've talked about, we can see that there's a God on the throne in heaven throughout all this turnover of kings and kingdoms. Yes, we can see that he says in the end, those who have their faith in Christ win. There's all these things. But I want to I really bring it home to an application to your heart. Okay, so here are my three thoughts as we land Daniel. And that's this. There is much we know, but there is much we don't know. Look what, look what Daniel says in this. He's saying in verse... Uh, eight. I heard, but I did not understand. And I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of time. We've heard him say that to Daniel before, which is like, shut up the words. Write them down and shut up the words. What does he mean by that? And even Daniel, do you see this, that Daniel, if he being so close in proximity to all of this information, to actually having be the guy in the visions and dreams, and he's seeing these angelic figures, and he's conversing, sometimes asking them questions, and he still doesn't understand it all. That means you're not going to understand it all either. We can't know it all. This is the way God works. He gives us what he wants us to know, but he doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't. And yet we are still to go and we're, we're to, to study His Word and we're to try to understand with the, 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 the knowledge that we won't know everything. And you know what one of those things is? The date. How many of you have ever heard of date setters? Oh, we figured it out. Jesus is coming back on this day only to have that day come and it's like, didn't happen. I've heard of stories. People sell their house. People close up their businesses because Jesus is coming back, and he doesn't come back. If they set the day and they say this is the day, you can guarantee it's not happening that day. Because Jesus himself said, no one knows the day. They don't know. That, we, we can't know. And they're, they're, the, the trouble is we can become so affixed at trying to figure it out that that's what our whole preoccupation is. 
Yes, there's value in prophecy. This, this particular doctrine of, of prophecy, uh, of all of the doctrines, it's one of the ones that I have studied the most. It's super interesting to me. But I've been here 11 years, and this is the first year I've ever preached on it. It's valuable. It's important. But I want to take this thought and give you the next one, which is much is given in future knowledge and prophecy, particularly to those who love God. If you do want to understand, let me just make a connection point here. Do you realize, now I learned this for the first time, in all the studying I've ever done in this series, I learned something new, because something was said while I was reading, and I went, uh, I never connected those dots. You know what they were? First dot was this, what guy in the Old Testament did God give the most prophetic information to? Daniel. What kind of guy was he? He was a guy that loved God. Three times a day, he prayed. He had a room at his house just for prayer. How many of you do that? Yeah, go to your house. This is the TV room. This is the, the guy's den. We've got a pool table in there. Pastor, this is the prayer room. Never happened. We don't devote a room, a whole room. Daniel devoted a room to prayer. He loved his God. He put it all on the line. I'm going to stand up for my God. You can throw me in there with the lions. He was a man who loved God, and there's something about his heart and his love for God that God came, and he gave to him the greatest amount of truth about the future. And here's the other dot. This is what I learned. Who did God give the greatest amount of prophetic truth to in the New Testament? Anybody know? John. And what was he known as? The disciple who loved Jesus. Peter, he's the guy that pulls the sword out and cuts ears off. John's the guy who loves Jesus. That's how he refers to himself. He, he, you read his epistle, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to separate myself from all the other disciples by this, this category. I am the disciple that Jesus loves. Jesus loves me. <laughs> They wrote that song. That's about me, right? Jesus, Jesus loves me. <laughs> and he's the guy all disciples martyred, killed. Not John. John ended up on an island in Patmos, and he wrote the book of Revelation there. And there's this point I want to make about, wow, you know, we're not going to know everything, but God enlightens those and gives to those there's a connection. How, how much do you give your life to Him? We create so many barriers in our life. How can God give more to us? Because our heart is given to so many idols. Not Daniel. Not John. And then lastly, I put here, the wicked will be wicked. The righteous refined. Because he says this to, to, to Daniel. He says, go your way, Daniel. The words are shut. You're not going to know everything, understand it all. And then he says this, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And he finishes with these two categories of people. The wicked, and they're going to be wicked. The righteous who are refined, always 
being refined. And I think in my age as a pastor, I understand this because there's a lot of information to study and know. I'm not going to know everything, but the what really matters, Christian maturity is not measured by the knowledge here. It's measured by how much of my heart I continue to surrender to Him. Because I can have information and I can say, I don't want to give that to you. I don't want to give that part of my life to you, that part of my heart to you. That's immaturity. That's it's not seeing it for it is, for what it truly is. That's seeing value in something that's earthly as being greater than the glory of God. That's the connecting point. And all of these three come together. There's much we don't know we should study, but there should be a grace about us understanding we may not know everything, and we should be gracious to one, one another in that way. But if you love God, and the more you give yourself to Him, you grow in your faith and knowledge. John, Daniel, God gave so much to them. They loved Him so much. They gave themselves to His Word. And then, at the end, the wicked will be wicked. But you will be refined. The salvation of Israel comes through that refinement. Many thousands of years, they have rejected truth. And there'll come a day where God will put fire to them, and it will bring about their salvation. But that says to you, He works the same way. I've got parts of my heart I don't want to give to you, God. And when I read it in here, some of it I say yes to, some of it I say no to. He's got to refine you. He's constantly working on growing you, making you yield more of your heart to Him. Yield yourself to Him. Why? Because everything else stands against Him, will turn you from Him in rebellion. And that means this. If I go to number one, I don't know everything, but I'm going to learn why. So I can go out into the world and be like these people he talks about. Shine! I need to shine so that I can turn many to righteousness. That brings about the salvation of Israel. And that can bring about the salvation of Guam, of the U.S., of anywhere that God places you. You need to get into God's Word. And yeah, you won't know everything, but... You need to shine because it's with that knowledge, because it even uses this term. It says that, 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 that many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. You need to help their knowledge increase in the right things. Why? So they turn to righteousness. And you bring about the salvation of people and you bring about the salvation of communities. And so God brings you into the church to challenge you with His Word, to grow you so you can go out there and shine. And turn people towards righteousness. That is the purpose of the church today. There will come a day where he calls the church out. And he turns his attention back to Israel. And now you'll see it happen in Israel. Well, he'll raise up the wise within Israel to turn his nation back to him in righteousness. So, at the very end, that's what I give you from Daniel. The wicked will be wicked. Within us, there's a measure of wickedness. That is true. And God needs to refine that. And He needs people in this church to shine. 
to bring others, starting within this church, into a deeper faith, to let go of things of their heart that they won't let go of, to refine themselves, to bring about purity so we can go out there and live that and be that and bring the island of Guam and further to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, it's our last lesson on Daniel, but next week I put together a message that, that essentially is how to live like a citizen in Babylon. Well, I'll be pulling some things from our whole study that talks to you about being a citizen of God's kingdom that lives in earthly kingdoms. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this book. You've taught us so much from it. Thank you for the life of Daniel. Today, there was a lot of theology and doctrine, yet at the end, what we see is we may not understand it all. I, I know as I talk about 70 weeks and 490 years and different resurrections and different kinds and orders, sometimes it, it's hard to connect all those dots. And even with Daniel, who was so close in proximity to it all, said, I don't understand, God. And you said to him, it's okay. Close the book. Go live your life and shine. Because through your life and the shining of your life, you will bring about the refinement of others in their faith. You will turn others towards righteousness. And I just call upon the people of our church to live like Daniel's in the Babylon you've given us, to bring glory to you, and to bring about salvation in others. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand up and we'll finish as we worship together as a church.